Second Peter chapter one. Before we uh, get into the message this morning, anytime we start a new book, I like to kind of read an intro, kind of kind of give you an idea of what the book is for, what it was intended for, who its intended audience was, uh, kind of some of its background. Um, so the clear claim to authorship in Chapter 1, verse 1, by the Apostle Peter, gives the epistle its title. To distinguish it from Peter's first epistle, it was given the Greek title, Petrao B, or Second Peter. The author of Second Peter is the Apostle Peter. In 1.1, 1, 1, he makes that claim. In 3.1, he refers to his first letter. In 1.14, he refers to the Lord's prediction of his death. And in 1, 16 through 18, he claims to have been at the transfiguration. However, critics have generated more controversy over 2 Peter's authorship and rightful place in the canon of Scripture than any other New Testament book. The church fathers were slow in giving it their acceptance. No church father refers to 2 Peter by name until... Oregon, near the beginning of the 3rd century. The ancient church historian, Eusebius, only included 2 Peter in his list of disputed books, along with James, Jude, 2 John, and 3 John. Even the leading reformers only hesitantly accepted it. The question about the difference in Greek styles between the two letters has been satisfactorily answered. Peter wrote that he was, um, that he had someone else writing for him, Sylvanius, in 1 Peter. In 2 Peter, Peter either used a different person or he wrote the letter himself. Um, <clears throat> the difference in vocabulary between the two letters can be explained by the differences in themes. 1 Peter was written to help suffering Christians. We got plenty of suffering messages out of that book. Second Peter was written to expose false teachers. On the other hand, there are remarkable similarities in the vocabulary of the two books. The salutation, grace and peace be multiplied to you, is essentially the same in each book. The author used words as precious, virtue, putting off, and eyewitness to name just a few examples in both letters. Certain rather unusual words found in 2 Peter are also found in Peter's speeches in Acts of the Apostles, and these include received, godliness or piety, and price or wages of wickedness or unrighteousness. Both letters also refer to the same Old Testament event. Some scholars have pointed out that there are as many similarities in vocabulary between 1 and 2 as there are between 1 Timothy and Titus, two letters almost universally believed to have been written by Paul. The difference in themes also explains certain emphasis, such as why one letter teaches that the second coming is near and one deals with its delay. 
1 Peter, ministering especially to suffering Christians, focuses on the imminency of Christ as a means of encouraging Christians. 2 Peter, dealing with scoffers, emphasizes the reason why that imminent return of Christ has not yet occurred. Other proposed differences invented by the critics, such as the contradiction between including the resurrection of Christ in in one letter and the transfiguration of Christ in the other, seem to be contrived. Moreover, it is seemingly irrational that a false teacher would uh, spuriously, whatever that word is, write a letter again against false teacher. No unusual new or false doctrines appear in Second Peter. So if Second Peter were a forgery, it would be a forgery written by a fool for no reason at all. This is too much to believe. The conclusion to the question of authorship is that when the writer introduced the letter and referred to himself as Peter, that he was writing the truth. Nero died in A.D. 68, and tradition says that Peter died in Nero's persecution. So the epistle may have been written just before Nero's death, uh, either in A.D. 67 or 68. Since the time of the writing, the sending of his letter, Peter had become increasingly concerned about false teachers who were infiltrating the churches in Asia Minor. Though these false teachers had already caused trouble, Peter expected that their heretical doctrines and immoral lifestyles would result in more damage in the future. Thus, Peter, in an almost last will and testament, wrote to warn the beloved believers in Christ about the doctrinal dangers that they were facing. Peter does not explicitly say where he was when he wrote this letter, as he does in 1 Peter. But the consensus seems to be that Peter wrote this letter from prison in Rome, where he was facing imminent death. Shortly after this letter was written, Peter was martyred, according to reliable traditions, by being crucified upside down. Peter says nothing in the salutations about the recipients of this letter. But according to 3.1, Peter was writing another epistle to the same people that he wrote 1 Peter. In this letter, he spelled out that he was writing to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These provinces were located in an area of Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. The Christians to whom Peter wrote were mostly Gentiles. Second Peter was written for the purpose of exposing, thwarting, and defeating the invasion of false teachers into the church. Peter intended to instruct Christians on how to defend themselves against these false teachers and their deceptive lies. This book is the most graphic and penetrating expose of false teachers in Scripture, comparable only to Jude. The description of the false teachers is somewhat generic. Peter does not identify some specific false religions, cults, or systems of teaching. In a general characterization of false teacher, he informs that they teach destructive heresies. They deny Christ and they twist scriptures. They bring true faith into disrepute 
and they mocked the second coming of Christ. But Peter was just as concerned to show the immoral character of these teachers as he was to describe their doctrines. Wickedness is not the product of sound doctrine, but of destructive heresies. Other themes of this, li- of this letter can be discerned in the midst of Peter's polemic against the false teachers. He wanted to motivate his readers to continue to develop their Christian character. In so doing, he explains wonderfully how a believer can have assurance of salvation. Peter also wanted to persuade his readers of the divine character of the apostolic writings. Near the end of the letter, he presents reasons for the delay in Christ's second coming. Another reoccurring theme is the importance of knowledge. The word knowledge appears in this form sometimes 16 times in this form in these three short chapters. It is not too much to say that Peter's primary solution to false teachers is knowledge and true doctrine. Other distinctive features of 2 Peter includes a precise statement in the divine origin of Scripture, the future destruction of the world by fire, and the recognition of Paul's letters as inspired Scripture. 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus, of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life, godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And we'll stop there. Simon Peter's full name was Simon Barjona, which literally means Simon, son of Jonas. Simon was the Greek form of the Hebrew name Simeon. There are eight other Simons that we find throughout the New Testament. Simon the Zealot, which is found in Matthew 10, 4. Simon the half-brother of the Lord, Matthew 13, 55. Simon the Leopard, Matthew 26, 6. Simon of Cyrene was the one who was made to carry the cross, for Jesus in Matthew 27:32, Simon the Pharisee, Jesus ate at his house in Luke chapter 7 verse 36 through 50. Simon the father of Judas Iscariot, uh, John 6:71, Simon the magician, Acts 8, 9 through 24, and Simon the tanner, which Peter had stayed with him in Joppa. We see that in Acts chapter 9. And verse 43. Now the first time that Jesus met up with Simon, he named him Cephas. In John chapter 1 and verse 42, which is Aramaic for rock. Peter is its Greek equivalent to rock. 
Peter was called Simon in two circumstances, in two situations uh, inside of the New Testament. In its secular references, the first time he was mentioned as Simon, it talked about his house, Simon's house in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And then it talked about Simon's mother-in-law in Mark chapter 1 and verse 30. Or when it spoke of his business in Luke chapter 5 and verse 3. But the most references that we see when he is called Simon are those times that his old man reared up. The old person reared up. That old man, that old unregenerated man kept popping up time after time after time. And that's when we saw him called Simon the most. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 24 and 25, Peter had arrogantly told the tax collectors that Jesus would pay the two drachma, the tax for the upkeep of the temple, to which Jesus called him Simon and had reminded him that as the Son of God, that he was exempt from paying the tax. Another time in Luke chapter 5, after he had fished all night long and had not caught anything, Jesus told them to, to go out into the deep and let down their net once again. And Peter, Peter hesitated. I mean, Jesus was a carpenter. He wasn't a fisherman. Peter was a fisherman. He was an expert. And here we have a carpenter telling a fisherman how to fish. And then it says, and Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say, and I will let down the nets. And then Jesus had warned the cocky Peter of his coming betrayal. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. And then in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus called him Simon when he could not stay awake and pray. Mark chapter 14, verse 37. But the last time that Jesus called him Simon was in John chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. You see, Simon was tired of waiting for Jesus. And so he boldly proclaimed he was going fishing. And of course, all the men that were following him as a leader gathered up and said, we're going with you. They went, they fished all night long, they caught nothing. They came back. Jesus was sitting upon the shore cooking breakfast for them. As they departed the boat and they came over, not long after breakfast, Jesus looked at Peter. And three times he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Three times he called him Simon. Three times he told him to feed his sheep. And then it was not but just a few weeks later that the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to Peter and to all the apostles given to them for power and strength to live this Christian life 
that they were now called to. And from that moment on, the rock lived up to his name. <coughs> he took the lead when they had to replace Judas Iscariot in Acts chapter 1, 15 through 26. He boldly preached the gospel and 3,000 people were saved. In Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 40. He fearlessly confronted the Jewish authorities in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. And he disciplined sinning church members in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. And he aggressively exposed the false teachers in Acts chapter 8, in verse 20. Yes, he lived up to the name Rock from that point on. Peter was also the first to welcome Gentiles into the church. Now, unfortunately, Peter was never completely shook of that old man. He never quite got rid of old Simon. Old Simon kept rearing up every now and again. Paul had to confront him because of his hypocrisy towards the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. And he was called, he called and he referred to himself here in Second Peter as Simon Peter. He never quite shook Simon. That old man kept raring up. I mean, when God changed Saul to Paul, they didn't call him Saul Paul. He shook that old name. He shook, he got rid of Saul. But poor old Peter, he kept fighting off old Simon. Simon kept coming around. And you know, I believe that's why many of us can relate with Peter. Many of us can relate probably more to Peter than any of the other apostles that we read about. We just can't seem to completely shake the old man. We keep finding him raring up time and time again. We start out bold and confident like Peter. But over time, we find ourselves falling back into our old habits like Simon. But there's hope. There is hope if you want hope. Some of us are satisfied with being Simon Peter. But if you just want to be a rock, there's hope. And we're going to see that Second Peter. Peter calls himself a bond servant. It would be better translated a bond slave. The word translated servant would be better off as slave or bond slave. Literally, the word that is translated means a slave to enslave, to bring into bondage or to become or make a servant. You see, to call yourself a bond slave in this culture, in that culture of, of, of Peter's time, was very humbling. You see, slaves were considered no better than animals, or even an inanimate tool to be owned. So for Peter to, to call himself a bond slave was to lower himself to the, the level of a slave. 
And you know, as Christians, we should voluntarily submit ourselves as bond slaves to Christ. William Barclay had this to say about a slave at that time. To call a Christian slave of God means that he is inalienably possessed by God. In the ancient world, a master possessed his slaves in the same sense as he possessed his tools. A servant can change his master. A servant can change his master, but a slave cannot. The Christian inalienably belongs to God. To call the Christian slave of God means that he is in unqualified at the disposal, unqualifiedly at the disposal of God. In the ancient world, the master could do what he liked with his slaves. He had the same power over his slave as he had over his inanimate possessions. He had the power of life and death over his slaves. The Christian belongs to God. For God to send him where he will and to do with him what he will. The Christian is the man who has no rights of his own, for all his rights are surrendered to God. Ooh, nobody wants to be that. To call a Christian the slave of God means that the Christian owes an unquestioning obedience to God. Ancient law was told that was such that a master's command was a slave's only law. (laughs) Even if a slave was told to do something which actually broke the law, he could not protest, for as far as he was concerned, his master's command was the law. In any situation, the Christian has but one question to ask, Lord, what will thou have me to do? The command of God is his only law. And and to call the Christian the slave of God means that he must be constantly in service of God. In the ancient world, the slave had literally no time of his own. No holidays, no time off, no working hours settled by agreement, and no leisure. All his time belonged to the master. I wonder how many of us could call ourselves the slaves of God. How many of us would fit into these categories? How many of us would say that we belong totally to God and only to God and to no one else? How many of us would say that we are at God's disposal? He can do with me as he would like. He can send me where he would like. Whatever he wants to do, I am his. I am his slave. And how many of us would say that I am a slave and I am under complete obedience to God's law? God's law is the only law. And how many of us could say that as slaves that we give him all of our time? That we serve him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How many of us could call ourselves a bond slave of God? You know, Peter may have humbly called himself a bond servant of God. But he also identified his role as the apostle of Jesus Christ. 
An apostle was one that was officially sent out by Christ himself as a personal witness of the resurrected Lord with authority to boldly proclaim the truth. And then he says, to them that have attained like precious faith. To them. Once again, this is speaking of the Christians. This letter was sent to the same believers that had received the first letter. Mostly Gentile, but there were also a few Jewish Christians within the congregation. As mentioned earlier, somewhere this letter was written somewhere between 67 and 68 A.D. And then it says that they have obtained, some say they have received. This is speaking of their salvation, speaking of the Christians. This also implies that salvation is a gift. The word translated received means to obtain by divine will or given by allotment as in the casting of lots that they would do uh, during biblical times uh, to determine what God's will was. You see, either way, this is teaching us that salvation was not something that we obtained by our own efforts or by our own merit. It is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. You see, the faith that we receive today, listen, I got ahead of myself. It is given by God for his own purpose. And then he says that it is a like, precious faith. Like, that means equal in value, equal in privilege. Listen, the faith that we receive today is equal in rank, in position, in honor, in standing, in price, in value, as those that the Old Testament and the New Testament saints received. Faith is the ability that God gives us to believe in Jesus for salvation. That's what faith is. And then we're given a give of faith to believe and to follow God's word. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, that each of us is given a measure of faith. Hey, Dawson, can I get your help? Come here for a second. Come here, come here. This is killing him. I'm embarrassing him to fire out him. This is my nephew, though. I can do that. All right, stand up here. So let me ask you a question. Now, when you compare the two of us, which one of us has the most muscles? Now, uh, which one of us? Somebody Who has the most muscles? Dawson. Boy, you got one. <laughs> this is the thing that we need to understand. Dawson has the same amount of muscles that I have. 650 muscles are broken up into the human body. Unless you break it down to muscles within the muscles, then you end up with around 850. 
But Dawson has the exact same amount of muscles that I have. He was given the same amount of muscles that I was given. Now, my muscles have matured, and I have exercised, and I have worked my muscles so that they have gotten larger and they have gotten stronger. But he still has the same amount of muscles that I have. We were both given the exact same amount. Thank you, Dawson. Appreciate that. Each of us given the exact same amount of muscles. The only difference is, is my maturity and the effort that I have put into to grow those muscles, to grow them and to strengthen those muscles. And see, each of us, every single person in here was given those 650 muscles. Each and every one of us was given the same amount. We all have the same number of muscles. But some of us have worked and we have caused those muscles to strengthen. We have caused those muscles to grow. When you become a Christian, you are given a measure of faith. I believe the Bible teaches that everybody is given the same amount of faith. We are given a measure of faith. But it is those who take that faith and like a muscle, they work it and they strengthen it and it grows and it gets stronger. It's not that they have more faith. It's that their faith has strengthened. Their, great, their faith has grown. It has become strong because they have exercised it like a person exercises their muscles. Hmm. You see, you have the same measure of faith that was given to Peter, to Paul, to all the apostles. You have the same you just got to exercise and to strengthen those muscles. But the more you use those, that faith, the more you work that faith, the stronger and the bigger it becomes. I knew this was going to happen to me. I left my phone out in the truck. Romans chapter 10. Now you're going to have to bear with me as I turn there. Verses 12 and 13 say, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, you're my hero. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody thanks you. <laughs> Thank you very much. So Romans chapter 10, Paul teaches us that there is no difference between the Jew. There is no difference between the Gentile. We have the same Lord. That we are all richly blessed who call upon him. All faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then Peter goes on that says that it's through righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Christians are given eternal life because Jesus imputes or covers our sins and our unrighteousness with his righteousness. Making us acceptable to God. Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. This is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus' righteousness covers our sin. It is imputed to us. It is given to us. Salvation is a gift of God from every angle, from whichever way you look at it. It is a gift of God. The faith to believe is a gift. The faith to live is a gift. The righteousness that is imputed to us is a gift. The righteousness that covers our sin so that we might come to God is a gift from him. And then Peter called him God and Savior. The way that this sentence is formed, it identifies Jesus not just as our Savior, but also as God. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace. We've all heard grace. The unmerited favor towards sinners. Which, for those who believe the gospel, it grants complete forgiveness. Of all of their sins forever. That's grace. Through Jesus Christ. Through the blood that he shed upon the cross for us. That's grace. We didn't deserve that. We didn't earn that. We didn't merit that. That is grace. And peace. Peace with God. And peace from God. You see, when you experience that faith, when you receive God as your Savior, when you bring him into your life, that peace is granted. It is a guaranteed outcome of that salvation. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes on Sunday night. And what we have seen is a man who was given the gift of wisdom and the gift of wealth. And he started out strong. He started out with good intentions. But because he used those gifts for self-pleasure, he used those gifts for his own lust, now we're reading the inner thoughts of a man tortured with his own inefficiencies in life. You see, Solomon has no peace because he is no longer using those things that God gave him to serve God, but for his own pleasures. And he is a miserable, angry human being. But 
But Peter tells us that it's through the knowledge. This grace and peace are not available to those who do not know and who wholeheartedly embrace the gospel. This peace is not offered to them. This peace is not offered to those out there who do not serve God. You see, I receive all of this as I go deeper into God's word. The more I go in, the deeper I go in, the more I search, the more I research, the more I pray, the more I study, the more peace I have. You see, salvation doesn't come from feelings, from intuition, from emotions, from personal experience. Salvation comes from the revealed truth of the gospel, the knowledge of the gospel. Peace comes from personal experiences of God's deliverances of your personal trials. I have peace when I go into a trial because I know that God has delivered me from previous trials. I know that he has given me the strength to go through those times, those times when, when you can't even expect to get through it without God's strength and God's help. You see, our own trust and faith in God's promises gives us peace. I have peace because as I study the word, I understand that those promises are for me. And that brings me peace. I believe his word. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Your faith is strengthened. Your, strength, your faith is built as you study the word of God. Your peace grows the more you study, the more knowledge that you have about this creator of yours. Listen, the rest of your life should be a pursuit of greater knowledge of our creator. We should spend the rest of our lives, the rest of our days, trying to learn more about the one who created us. Then and only then will you have peace, true peace. And then and only then will you become more Christ-like. Faith, grace, righteousness, and peace are all gifts given to us as we seek his knowledge. Faith, grace, righteousness, and peace. And I promise you, the more you seek that knowledge, the more you will have of each. I had intended on doing verses 3 and 4 today, but oh my, there was so much in 1 and 2. So next week we'll continue with verse 3 and 4. Would you stand to your feet? Faith, grace, righteousness, and peace. That is what God has offered you. That is what God offers you as you seek his knowledge. And it's there. It's there. And we as a church try to offer as many opportunities as we can for you to come and to learn more about your creator. 
We studied the Old Testament in Sunday school class, parts of the New Testament in, in our messages during Sunday afternoon. Sunday night, we've been in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and we've looked at all of, uh, of the, the prophecy books. And then on Wednesday nights, we're into the Pauline letters. We give you as many opportunities as you want. And then during the week, there's an endless supply of messages on the radios. There's an endless supply of articles to read. Read your Bible. The more you study, the more you will find faith, grace, righteousness, and peace. Father, we thank you for this word today. God, what a reminder that you have given us. You have done your part. God, you have given us a gift. And now we must do our part. God, we need to open your word. We need to receive the knowledge. And God, you give us all the knowledge we want. We just have to receive it. We have to put ourselves out there. We have to inconvenience ourselves sometimes. And God, I pray for everyone standing here today. God, you know their level of faith. You know the the strength of their faith, God. You know how much they've used that faith to strengthen it, God, to make it stronger. (coughs) And God, you know where they stand with righteousness, God, with the life that they're living. Do they live a life that's pleasing to you, God? For God, we know that through all of this, there is peace when you serve God, when you study, when you learn more about him on a daily basis. It brings peace into our lives. And many of us here need peace in our life. And God, it's found in you. And now, Father, as we conclude this service, we are so thankful, God, for all that you do in our lives, for all the gifts that you have so freely given to us that are so undeserving. Father, go with us this afternoon. I pray for rest, God. And we ask all these things in Jesus' very precious name. Amen. God bless you.